Well, good morning, church family. It's a joy to be with you here today. Uh, I'm grateful for Pastor David and for his invitation to preach in his absence this morning as he is preaching this morning and all week at a retreat up in Tennessee. So if you would, please be in prayer for him as he's serving and ministering up there. And I hope that you all had a great 4th of July and really just a good summer, that you're having a good summer with your family and friends. Uh, I know that my wife, Becca, and I are really enjoying being able to spend more time with our boys. We have two, Thomas, who's four, and Will, who's almost 10 months. Will, I mean, he's so close to crawling, y'all. I mean, he's just almost there. He's up on hands and knees, even planking. I'm like, that is so much harder. Just crawl. And Thomas, he's at the beginning of his journey learning how to read. And so one of his favorite things this summer to be able to beat the heat is to go to the library, the public library with his mom. And that makes my wife, who's a former English teacher, very happy. And so they've been going to the library and I brought our library bag with us today. And one of Thomas's favorite books that he's been reading lately is Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I mean, you're just piling on all of the negativity right here with Alexander. And if you've read this book, are y'all familiar with this book? Yeah. So we, we've got some folks that have read this to their kids, to their grandkids. I mean, I remember this book. And so Thomas, he just cackles at this book. And I think, you know, just the comedy of errors, everything that's going on in Alexander's life, he's just having a bad day. And he's bemoaning the fact that he would be better off in Australia, right? I mean, so he just wants to be anywhere but where he's at. I mean, his brothers are out to get him. His teacher doesn't understand him. Nothing is going his way. All of his problems are happening on this one day. And if he can just get through the next one, then maybe things could be just a little bit better. And, you know, we're often prone to think very much like Alexander that a lot of our problems are just external. A lot of our problems are just out there and they're converging on us from the outside and that we are having to withstand the things that are happening around us and to us. And yes, that is some of what's going on, right? I mean, we all have those things. But if we think that our problems are exclusively external, then we are missing out on knowing the true state of things and how it can be remedied. Because if we go to the scriptures, it shows us that our problem is not merely external, but internal as well. It's not just in circumstances, but it's in sin that has taken up residence in the human heart because of our fall into sin. We see this in Genesis chapter three, don't we? With Adam and Eve where they took and ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, seeking to be like God, they tried to replace him. And then afterwards, as God comes to them, there's the pronouncement of curses, but also the giving of a promise that one would come to defeat the serpent, to crush his head. And there was so much hope coming from the line of Adam and Eve, and they were very excited with the birth of two little boys, Cain and Abel. We'll be considering their story this morning in Genesis chapter four, if you'd turn there with me. Genesis chapter four, starting in verse one. Sin has entered the world, but it's not just external, but now has taken up residence in the human heart. Follow along in verse one. Now, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel, he was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. 
In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Even though sin and death has been introduced into the world, God is gracious and still gives life. And Eve recognizes this. She recognizes the miracle that life is when she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That these were the first children conceived and born in the world. And there is so much hope riding on both of these boys. That as Adam and Eve going through, they are investing so much in being fruitful, multiplying, subduing the earth, passing on things to their sons. And they grow, they mature. Cain, he starts working the fields. Abel, he starts tending to the livestock. And I mean, everything seems to be going pretty good. If you think about it, I mean, Adam and Eve, they have two adult sons. They both have jobs, right? And they are now bringing some of the produce from those and they're offering it to the Lord. I mean, what more could you want? Worshiping God through their work here in the world. Things seem to be going great, but there's a little bit of conflict. They, in the course of time, they bring their offerings before the Lord. Cain of the fruit of the ground and Abel, the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, they bring it to the Lord. And the Lord has regard for Abel and his offering, but not for Cain and his offering. And this has led a lot of people to speculate why. Maybe you have that question as we were reading that out loud this morning. Why? And some have said, well, it's because Abel brought of meat and Cain brought from just the field, from his produce. But it's not as if God was just not feeling vegetarian that day. Like, I mean, it's not one of those things that he preferred meat to the grain sacrifices. We see later on in the law where he made provisions for both kinds of sacrifices. I mean, we hear the word first fruits all the time coming up again and again in Scripture. So it's not so much in the content of what is being brought to the Lord. But do you notice that God looks first at the giver before what is given Scripture does not say, and he had regard for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's offering. No. What does it say? That he had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. God looks at the giver before what is given. And we see in 1 Samuel chapter 16, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That a lot of times we really look at the things that are external, the things that are readily visible, but God, he looks deeper and he is able and he does look at the heart. And what does he see? Well, when he looks at the heart, we're able to see from Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, in the hall of faith, we see in Hebrews chapter 11, verse four, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. When God looked at their hearts, what did he see that differentiated the two? He saw that Abel offered out of faith. And what we really see here at the very beginning, second generation of humanity, is paradigmatic for us in ways that we approach God. Are we approaching God out of a heart of works? Or are we approaching God out of a heart of faith? Works or faith? 
Well, when we pull these things together and we see them, contrast them side by side, we see that approaching out of a heart of works means that we give to God what is required and what is readily available. Like Cain, there's, in his offering, I mean, it was what was required, bringing from what he had. But there was nothing really else to write home about what he brought. We see it in the contrast when we see in Abel's offering. He brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. He brought the first and the fattest, the best. Cain, he just brought what was required and readily available. Just enough to be able to meet the standard. He goes what is required, readily available out of duty to earn something. That as we're going through right here, the Cain offering what is required, readily available, and doing it is just because what you're supposed to do. And maybe if I do this enough, then I'll be able to do a little bit more of what I want to do. I could placate the divine, or maybe I can earn right standing in his eyes. That's worshiping God out of a heart of works, but we see there's a different way. Worshiping out of the heart of faith. To worship out of a heart of faith means that we give to God what is best and supremely valuable. Abel bringing the first and the fattest of his flock out of delight, not duty, out of delight, enjoyment, praise to praise God. Not to earn anything in God's eyes, not to earn any sort of external reward, but to express the relationship that is already there. That what we see out of a heart of works and out of a heart of faith working our way into right standing or working our way for the blessing versus the heart of faith, realizing we already have standing with God because of his work for us. It's all his. And what he has accomplished, he has now given to us in Christ. And then not to earn any sort of other blessing, but we now have everything that we need for life and godliness and everything that we have is a gift from him. And we just give back acknowledging him as the giver and us as the stewards. That when we come to God, when we worship him, it is let it be out of a heart of faith and not out of works. Why? It's because motive matters. Motive matters. Think with me, if you would, um, ladies, if you have a husband, fiance, significant other, and they come to you and say, we're going to dinner tonight. Let's be ready at six. Okay, and you're like, oh, this is wonderful. Like, I don't, we don't have to prepare the food tonight. We don't have to clean up anything. Like, we'll get a sitter. It's wonderful. We'll go to the restaurant and you get in the car, six o'clock. And I mean, it's kind of a quiet, awkward car ride, but you're, maybe he's just saving conversation for the dinner table. It's something that, so you get to the restaurant, you unfold the menu, you start to look. I mean, this is a big deal. We're not just getting entrees tonight. We're gonna get apps. We're gonna get desserts. We're gonna put them both together, book in the meal. It's gonna be wonderful. You close the menu, you look up. And your husband, fiance, significant other could not be less interested to be there. You're trying to pull his gaze away from the TV that's over your shoulder, thinking you should have sat at a different place at the table, right? And you're just, so what's the occasion? And he's, what? what? Could you say that again? So why are we here? Well, I mean, this is, this is just what you do, Right? I mean, we're, I'm your husband, I'm your fiance, I'm your significant other. Like this, I've, you, you've mentioned this before that this is something that you'd like to do. Uh, I, 
maybe if I do this, then I can go back to doing what I want to do a little while without being bothered, you know, something like that. And you're just like, what would you do in that instance? Oh, no, you go through. And in that moment, even the food comes, that dessert that you love, and you can't even eat it because all you can taste is his indifference. There is nothing that is agreeable, enjoyable about this meal. Why? Because motive matters. It matters at the dinner table and it matters to God when you come. When you out of worship, are you coming because it is just something that you're supposed to do? Something that your mother, grandmother said that you were supposed to do. Something that is just a prevailing cultural norm. Something maybe that you think, oh, I can earn my way. I can have a religious resume long enough to be able to stand before the divine. Or I'm not really interested in a relationship with him, but I could do enough to be able to get something else that I really want. And so I'm just stacking the chips, waiting to cash out the blessing. Motive matters. It matters to God. And we see that it matters here with these two brothers. One coming out of a heart of works and the other coming out of a heart of faith. God has regard for Abel and his offering and this leaves Cain fuming. He's wearing his emotions on his sleeve and he can see it all. The Lord sees the heart, but he doesn't have to look past his face on this one. And as he looks at his face, this is what he says in verse six, what the Lord says. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin, it's crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God comes to Cain and is asking a question. And now this is the thing. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. When he asks a question, it's not to find out information that he does not already know. It is to be able to draw out from the other person. He's creating the space for someone to be able to get out what is up here into here. He's trying to draw the poison out. Because why? Humanity has fallen into sin. And that sin now has taken up residence in the human heart and is now swirling and raging and running through Cain's mind, trying to figure out how he can settle the score. And God comes to him and he says, there is a different way. If you do well, if you offer in faith, will you not be accepted? Will your face not be lifted up? But if you continue to go down this road, if you open the door to sin, it is crouching. Its desire is contrary to you and it will devour you. Sin kills. But Cain, he swings the door wide open. And we see this in verse eight. Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. You know, I think that this is a very well-known portion of scripture here at the very beginning. I mean, it was ripe for Sunday school lessons, you know, different things like that. If you've gone through Bible reading plans for the year, I mean, you know, starting in Genesis, right, that this is often some of the most read scripture. And sometimes our familiarity with it can bring numbness to it, but there was so much hope from the promises of Genesis 3.15 that one would come from the line of Eve to defeat the serpent She's gotten a man with the help from the Lord thinking possibly maybe this is it. She doesn't know how many generations it's gonna span, but here 
she hears word, not only has she lost a son, but she has lost a son at the hands of another son. That Adam and Eve right now are seeing the deadly consequences of sin being unleashed in the world and not just external, but sin being let loose in the human heart. And as they're going through, Cain, he held on to this. And whereas in Genesis 3, Eve had to be talked into her sin by the serpent, now in Genesis chapter 4 after the fall, Cain could not be talked out of his sin. He was on this deadly destructive path. He harbored the bitterness. He schemed, retreated into isolation. And what does the text say? He rose up in trying to tear down his brother, thinking that this world wasn't big enough for the both of them. That God's acceptance was a zero sum game. If he gets it, I don't. He's looking on a horizontal plane. Rather than looking at what God has said and having relationship with him, he looks and compares towards other people. And if I can just be better than that person, then maybe I can be accepted in God's sight. He felt like something had been taken away from him. He had to settle the score. This anger now turns into murderous revenge. And it shows us that revenge kills. Sin kills. You know, we at the library, you know, there's another book. Thomas didn't pick this one out, uh, but Moby Dick is <laughs> very much different. Um, you know, instead of Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, this could be Ahab and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad life, right? So as he's going through, Captain Ahab, call me Ishmael, right? This is really 600 pages of revenge, Captain Ahab on the seas for over 40 years, walking the decks of his ship with a peg leg made from what? The jawbone of a whale. Why? Because 40 years ago, a similar whale named Moby Dick had taken his leg from him. And so he was walking around every day on a prosthesis to remind him of what had been taken and who had done it and how he was gonna settle the score. And so he's out chasing after this white whale. He's going on trying to figure out how he can harpoon it and somehow bring some measure of equilibrium to his life. But as he's going on, he's towards the end of his life and towards the end of this book. And he's on the deck of the ship with his first mate, Starbuck. And yes, that's where the coffee shop got its name. He's talking with Starbuck. And he's starting to really question the trajectory that his life has taken and how he has been so consumed with catching the white whale. And Starbucks says, you're the captain. I mean, it's not too late. We can turn back. Nantucket's right over there. Like we can go. You just say the word. He's effectively widowed his wife, even though he is still very much alive. He has forsaken all else in pursuit of this one thing getting back at that person, that thing that had taken something from him. And he tells Starbuck that he can't. And this is what he says. What is it? What nameless, inscrutable, unearthly thing is it? What causing hidden Lord and master and cruel, remorseless emperor commands me? 
that against all natural lovings and longings, I so keep pushing and crowding and jamming myself on all the time, recklessly making me ready to do what is in my own power, natural heart. That hidden master and Lord for Ahab was sin, was anger, was revenge and in seeking to settle the score with this white whale. And after this happens, he catches a glimpse. Three day long chase, finally catches up to the whale, launches the harpoon, plants firmly inside the side of the whale. Victory, his life's purpose finally achieved, he thinks. The whale darts off, the rope goes taut and between the whale and the mast, it wraps around Ahab's neck. It snaps. And as the whale goes, so goes Ahab, down into the watery depths to his grave. You see, revenge kills not only the victim, but the perpetrator as well. Sin cascading in death and destruction. We see it here with these two brothers. Cain rose up and he killed his brother. And God comes again to him and says this in verse nine. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Again, God is asking questions, not to find out information, but to draw something out. Here trying to draw out a confession from Cain, but there is none of it to be found. And his answers are his condemnation. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? It's at this point that the Lord says, I can hear the voice of your brother's blood. Blood has a voice that calls out from beyond the grave and the Lord hears it. And because of this, the ground that the blood has been spilled on will not work for Cain anymore. Well, Cain starts to play out some of the consequences of his actions and what the Lord has just said in verse 13. Listen to this. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me, they're gonna kill me. There's a lot of self-pity and dread laced through these words, but not a hint of remorse. Not being sorry for what was done, but sorry over being found out and sorry over the consequences of what he had done. But the Lord, even in this non-confession, shows common grace to Cain and spares his life. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Even in light of all of this, God shows common grace, cutting off the cycle of bloodshed 
and the destructive dominoes that would fall as a result of these actions. That God right here treated Cain in a similar way that he did to his father and mother, Adam and Eve. Because there in the garden, there was evidence against them. They'd eaten the fruit. Here with Cain, there was evidence against him. His brother's blood screaming out from the ground. Then there was a punishment that Adam and Eve had to be removed from the Garden of Eden. Now here Cain is being removed away from his family, from the presence of the Lord, from all that he's ever known. But still, like his mother and father, there is grace that comes. A promise that one would come to undo the works of the devil and coverings of animal skin to cover their nakedness and their shame. And here with Cain, there is a sign, a mark to protect his life as he is going on his way. That grace covers. And God here in his common grace is starting to point forward even more to the story that we will know of the special grace for all who will turn from sin and trust in him. So how how do we bring this home today? This story from the beginning of the Bible, from a place so long ago, from a time so long ago, how does this connect with us here in Birmingham, Alabama in the 21st century? Well, there are three questions that I want us to reflect on here at the end of our time together today. The first one is, what is your motive for worship? Is it coming to God out of works to be able to earn something, whether that's standing in his sight or a blessing or provision of something that you could go off and do on your own apart from him? Are you coming trying to earn or are you coming to God trying to express Express gratitude, thankfulness, praise. Why? Because he alone is worthy of it. That God has made a way for us to be able to come to him so that we could through faith, not in ourselves, not believing in ourselves, not in the things that we could do, but having faith, coming to him through the open door, through Christ, for him accomplishing what we could not accomplish ourselves living a perfect life in our place and dying a sinner's death in our place. What is our motive for worship? Are we trying to earn a place or to earn a blessing or provision? Or are we coming to express gratitude for everything already being ours in Christ? Then the second one would be, are you holding on to anger against a brother or sister? Or a deeper way, if we were to claw down even further, are you harboring sin in your heart? That sin that is crouching, that is waiting, this desire is for us. Whereas the New Testament writers would say, that sin which so easily entangles us. Are we harboring that in our heart towards another? Are we trying to let it fester, to be infecting our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes, deceiving others, retreating into isolation, carrying out deeds against one another, dealing in death. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, 
that to be angry with a brother or a sister carries the same judgment as actually murdering them. That for us, are we holding on to this or are we letting it go and placing it at the feet of Jesus? Are we trying to figure out ways, maybe large or small, that we can exact vengeance on our own behalf or are we saying that we will leave vengeance and justice to the Lord? Are we holding on to that anger? Are we holding on to that sin? And then lastly, have you trusted in Christ? Because it is only through Christ that we are able to do either of these previous two questions. It is only through Christ that we are able to worship out of a heart of faith rather than our heart of works. It is only through Christ that we can say no to sin and say yes to him. It is only through Christ and his blood that we can have fellowship with God again. Because we're able to see that even in this story, at the very beginning of the Bible, it is pointing forward to Christ. Because the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 24 would say this, that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant and his blood, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because you see, blood has a voice that is heard from beyond the grave. And where Abel's blood cried out from the ground, accusing the guilty, the blood of Christ now cries out from the cross, acquitting the guilty. Where Abel's blood says, he did it. Christ's blood says, I did it. Where Abel's blood said, death is final. Christ's blood said, it is finished. And he was gonna get up from the grave, conquering sin, death, and the devil once and for all so that all who would repent from their sin and trust in him and him alone for salvation would be able to have life and light and love with their creator and redeemer again. Not having to go in the way of Cain, not having to go in the ways of the world, living in the fallout of sin in external circumstances and internal realities. Christ has come to make all things all things new. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do you believe that? What we sang earlier in the service, do you believe that? That regardless of what you have done, regardless of what has been done to you, you can be whole again. How? Only through the blood of Jesus. Let us pray.